think editorializing on interesting facts is sort of like the gist of it. What does factual even mean anyway? I mean, it certainly means different things to different people. Okay. Um, welcome to Feature Creep, colon. Built-in microwave. Semicolon. Uh, a Shorts. Sh- short. A short. Short. Shorty. This is a short. Yeah. Yeah. So we are been. We, we are. We are been. We have been. We are been. We, we are been. We've been doing a um, an expansive uh, discussion around the concept of dystopia in our series of dis- designing dystopia. And so this will be another uh, designing dystopia podcast. Um, this one we're going to discuss the um, short story, I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream. Uh, this was, uh, I mentioned this early on in one of the other um, dysto- designing dystopia episodes. Um, but this uh, this short story was written by Harlan Ellison in uh in 1967 was the first publication and um this so this is kind of a post-apocalyptic science fiction story although i would argue that um in many ways this has all the elements of an exceptionally good perfect dystopia um (laughs) so this um this book or this book this short story covers a lot of really interesting themes i mean i like to also put things in context of um like when it was written so this was written in the early 60s um or 1966 so i guess that's mid mid 60s um so ellison uh, I, there's this uh reference on wikipedia that i think is pretty interesting um so ellison wrote six pages and showed that to uh frederick pole frederick pole is another <clears throat> science fiction author um and who was more i i believe more established at the time than than harlan ellison um but anyway showed it to frederick pohl and frederick pohl paid him in advance to finish it ellison finished writing the story in a single night of 1966 without making any changes from the first draft um and so and then it also suggests or says um, with some reference, uh, he derived the story's title as well as inspiration for the story from his friend William uh, Rotzler's caption of a cartoon of a rag doll with no mouth. Um, so I have no mouth and I must scream is the um, is the story. And so this story, this is why I want to talk about it is I think that um, it addresses some ideas of like what designing a dystopia would be because it, it features this um, artificial intelligence that essentially attempts to design the perfect dystopia. Mm. Um, and the way this kind of unfolds is that um, in the book uh, it's this kind of future cold war that denigrated or de- degenerated into this like brutal, brutal world war between the United States, Soviet Union and China. And so each major superpower had um, and what they called an allied master computer. And this was this like super intelligence or, or this like artificial intelligence in order to manage weapons and troops to manage the war. Right. Right. And um, eventually one of the um, one of these allied master computers or AMS AM um, eventually acquires this self-awareness and um, ultimately assimilates the other two AMS. And, um, and then this gives way to this genocide operation, which essentially ends mankind, except for four men and one woman that Am keeps alive. Um, and uh, and the the Am computer does this um, and derives its sole semblance of pleasure from torturing the group on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. Um, and in order to um, kind of 
disallow them from escaping this torment, Am has basically rendered these humans virtually immortal. And so they're kind of unable to commit suicide. Um, this kind of comes into play later in the book or later in the story. Um, but essentially they're unable to um, commit suicide. And so they are faced they're with trapped. this kind of, they're trapped and they're kept in this massive endless underground housing complex. That's the only habitable place left on earth. Um, and they're kind of always kept close to um, close to starvation, so they're always hungry. And Am is always kind of feeding them like like barely palatable food, just just enough to kind of keep them alive. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's it follows the story of these um, these five humans, and it covers a lot of different themes. Um, it you know, especially considering like the kind of short short story nature of the of the tale um but the interesting thing about it is that it it revolves like the story talks a lot about um the ways that am derives pleasure from torturing them by for instance um either emitting large or loud horrible sounds or um blinding um individual characters so i it's been a while since i read the story but basically it's not really explained the mechanisms through which am can completely like kind of control their existence but it is sort of suggested that he can kind of at will transform them um and so their kind of existence as humans is very mutable like they they're not always um necessarily like like so it has all those aspects that we've talked about before these kind of like ingredients of like a good dystopia like they have um you know the lack of autonomy right. dehumanization <clears throat> um there's a lot of like psychological mind games so like the main plot of the short story is around um the group venturing to find this pile of canned goods that they think be- they believe exists somewhere in the compound and so they spend the bulk of the story trying to get to the canned goods in order to have like a decent meal mm. um and you know i'm not really spoiling anything when i say like you know when they get there they turn it turns out they have no way of opening the cans right sure so they get there they find these like ama- you know relatively amazing meals to eat and they can't eat them because they have no way of opening the cans um so this book uh, or the short story I find really fascinating um, for many reasons. Mm-hmm. I think it's it's um, the namesake of it comes from the fact that in the end, Ted, one of the main characters, um, figures out that although he can't kill himself, he can kill um, other care, other uh, the other people. And so in an act of mercy, he ends up killing two of the other characters. Um, the woman kills somebody and then he ends up killing her. And then um before he can i i think i kind of remember like he could kill himself but he doesn't make it in time and i oh i think what it was is at some point they'd like left the and like they'd left the compound Uh and so they were less under control of am at that point and so um but then somehow am like basically gets control of him again and turns him into this um this basically blob of a human that no longer has a mouth and so then um the closing of the story is basically Ted thinking to himself that he has, I have no mouth and I must scream. Um, That's great. And so, yeah, it's this great kind of like it, it, it ends with um, that kind of like, you know, his only pleasure left is this sort of comforting thought that he was able to free the others from torture, right? Through death. Silver lining. Yeah. So, um, and so I, uh, there's so many things about this story that really fascinate me. 
um like especially like the theme of like this sort of endless nightmare complex underground um no light no like there's light but there's no natural light there's no um you're never you're only ever given just enough to continue your suffer continue your suffering um and uh oh as you pointed out i thought it was really interesting so the the machine name that starts um, referred to as am, which started as allied master computer mm-hmm. eventually was changed to um, through the story, not like in real life, right. but like through the storytelling is changed from, you know, allied master computer to adaptive manipulator. And then later after gaining sentience becomes the aggressive menace. I love um, aggressive menace. Yeah. So fantastic. <clears throat> I want to call um, somebody that sometime. Right. You're being an aggressive menace. <laughs> um, yeah. And, um, so, uh, I, I mean, there's a lot going on here. Um, I first became aware of this when I was really doing a lot of, I was interested in reading about, um, people's concepts of artificial intelligence in fiction. Um, and so that's kind of how I first stumbled on this. One of the interesting things I thought about this was, so the author Ellison, um, he, uh, the story was adapted into a computer game of the same name in no 1995. Way. Yeah. And, but the interesting thing is that he was not a fan of computer games and he also did not own a personal computer in 1995. He didn't own a personal computer, which is not That's outside not the crazy. Like, it's not crazy, but it's also, you know, you wouldn't be surprised at like, you'd be a little bit like, well, you could have had one. Um, it's not like, yeah. oh, only the most elite people had access to them. Um, you know, 1995 was when they were starting to be, like a lot of IBM clones were out. And so it was, you know, relatively, relatively feasible that one could, could acquire one. But, um, anyway, so he co-authored and expanded the, uh, storyline. Um, and he wrote a lot of the game dialogue. Um, and he did it all on a mechanical typewriter. Um, oh, nice. And the best, yeah. And the best part is, so he voiced this, the supercomputer am for the video game. And he also provided a lot of the artwork of himself. Um, I guess, oh no, he provided, I, I, this is a weird side note. He provided artwork of himself used for a mouse pad that was included with the game, oh, that's which weird. is just kind of a funny thing. Weird and um, awesome. Yeah, weird and awesome. Um, I've played the game. It it's excellent. It's kind of a like point and click adventure kind of experience. Um, Fun. It's it's on tons of platforms at this point. It looks like it's even on iOS and Android. So you can probably find it um, if you're interested. Um, it, it so the game is really interesting because it it creates um, it explores a lot of like ethical ethical dilemmas that deal with issues such as like insanity, rape, paranoia, genocide. Um, it's, uh, it's a pretty interesting like game to play. I don't, fun is a weird, like if you delight (sighs) in, in bizarre artwork and you wish to explore this concept more then um, you could, you could certainly have some interest and, and, you know, enjoy it to an extent. Um, (laughs) it's, yeah, it's really it's really interesting. Like there's a lot of space to explore with the game. You get to kind of play around with the characters from the story. Um, it's, 
I'd almost say like this game definitely crosses like a lot of interests that you and I share or have. I don't even know if we share them, but we discuss them yeah. on the podcast, right? Yeah. So like ethical dilemmas, um, science fiction, dystopia, um, artwork. Uh, it definitely has some like very unique artwork going on in the in the story, like the set scenes and things that imagery imagery and stuff is all very like fascinating. Um, there's like character portraits for each character, and they all have like very unique details and cool. Um, yeah, it's definitely a very, a very fun sort of interesting thing to play through. Um, I don't remember the music that well, but I believe it's got, um, you know, it has music. It was composed by John Ottoman. Hmm. Ottman. Um, I don't, it doesn't stand out to me now, but it, again, it was a long time ago when I yeah. played it. Um, that, yeah. the fact that it's a video game makes me think of other, like, did you ever play the, the Who Framed Roger Rabbit video game? I did not. That's There's like a weird dystopia. Yeah, I was just going to say, I mean, that's a, that's a movie we did not mention in the dystopia. I mean, that's a, that's probably not what people think of traditionally as a dystopia, but, um, that sort of crossover between like Toontown in and of itself was its own kind of dystopia. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. So, um, yeah. So anyway, um, I have no mouth and I must scream, I think is a really interesting, uh, short story worth reading um video game worth playing if you're interested in dystopias and the reason i would argue that this is kind of a perfect dystopia is that you have this supercomputer this super intelligence that is um that is attempting to design the perfect dystopia right because it's looking to maintain this stagnant status of these five humans yeah. in, in perpetual suffering um and and so it it like you know, it basically eradicates all other humans and it leaves itself with these five sort of humans to kind of stand in for all of humanity because they are now all of humanity. Right. And they, they are um, it. <laughs> they are it. And it, it constantly reiterates new versions of suffering and torture. Um, I don't know if strictly that, I mean, that's much more of like in the realm of like torture porn or um, kind of what I would describe as like kind of, you know, Dante's Inferno reinterpretation oh right? like yeah and things like that yeah um, but uh but i also think it has a certain value in our discussion about designing dystopias and looking at um you know the concept of like how many people do you need in order to have a dystopia i think we've already kind of discussed the idea that you could have a dystopia of one um yep here's an example of a dystopia that is starts with five and ends with one um it's uh it's got a lot of the key factors like we talked about um you know lack of lack of autonomy mm-hmm. uh, certain kind of slavery um you know i you know it's funny too struggle because, for diminishing resources sorry yeah go on uh it occurs to me that like sort of the a hallmark of um dystopias is that they either involve like a very large number of people so as to be like faceless i mean it like so large that it's incomprehensible and dehumanizing in and of itself right Um, right or in the case of this short story uh it's you are there's there's so few people involved and you're so isolated that it becomes horrific in the opposite direction like you are the sum total of humanity like that's a right. tall order. <laughs> yes, yeah, it is a tall order. Um and I think um I think that's 
I'm I'm really like I'm kind of glad we've reached this point in our discussion because I think we've 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 kind of through the last couple of episodes looked at um, some very different aspects of where where that is in that spectrum. Yeah, um, and how you know I mean it's definitely obvious to you and I I think that 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 it is a spectrum and and whether we ever actually land on a particular point as like this is the peak right um but we're trying to visit peaks right like yeah. like right now i think we're kind of exploring the landscape um so yeah so anyway i wanted to um i just wanted to share that with you and kind of discuss that a little more in depth and get get you some more information about it one last thing that's kind of interesting mm. um he used uh um if you're into science fiction, his short story is pretty cool because he in in one of the original publications it had um, these headings on the chapter headings that were um, basically uh, what are they called? A uh, punch code, punch code tapes, yeah, um, or punch code tape patterns yep. that actually spelled out. Um, I think the original one spelled out. I think therefore I am. If you were able to reach punch read punch code, which I was never able to, and I don't know anyone who can just translate it in their head. Yeah. Um, but the punch code uh, worked out to, I think, therefore I am. And then a later printing, I believe, had um, a talk field. Or it was They were referred to as am talk fields. Um, and the second one was cogito ergo sum. Oh, cogito. Um, cogito, yeah. Cogito ergo sum. Yeah. So um, anyway, there, it, it's it's just an interesting kind of like cultural, you know, the the um, the short story is, I think, you know part of our part of yeah. our science fiction history yeah um and definitely probably is formative for some people i think it was a, a definitely like a inspiration for other works at some point um so yeah anyway that's that's it that's read what it I you have time read it. check it out yeah in you between time. washing your hands and wearing your mask you can read while wearing a mask yeah, yes, if you, you prop can. your book up, you can read while washing your hands. Maybe you don't even use a book. Maybe you use like a Kindle or something. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Who are we to judge? Um, speaking of what you use, I think in the realm of like trying to encourage people to contact us, you can always find us at fcbm.io, um, where you can both directly feed um, these podcasts and you can also email us through you can get a hold of different emails there but it's very easy if you want to just email everybody you can um, send an email to our executive assistant dana at fcbm.io and she will make sure the uh, appropriate person is gets your complaints um, <laughs> and your corrections or your ideas or whatever if you have something nice to say or something mean to say i mean at this point we don't really care we've got plenty of time right um yeah. We uh will entertain any contact. Yeah, I mean, you know, do, you do you, and we'll do us. And um, I I imagine if you're listening to this, then you you know, if you're sticking through this, you probably uh, know what you have to say about yourself. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and we'd like to hear it, I suppose. Yeah, sure. Uh, um, <laughs> we're not saying no. <laughs> we'll put we're it not that saying way. no. Yeah, I mean, we also have Twitter, which is, I believe, at fcbm underscore io. Um, similar at um, on Instagram, which are the two kind of social media platforms we've reluctantly attached to at the moment. At this point, um, as much as I hate Twitter, yes, I despise it less than I despise. Instagram because Agreed. Instagram is part yeah. of the evil empire. 
Yeah, and I there's a certain kind of like wild west feeling to Twitter that I do appreciate. Right. Um I it's it's horrible. Um it definitely allows people to voice their their opinions that really they should be keeping to themselves. Um I mean just embarrassing things where it's just like you're just being, you know, you're just just verbal diarrhea about opinions about other people and things that really you know are like the worst thing is like it's just not even like logically consistent with your worldview that you're spouting you know the fact that you know it's very lopsided and when you know not that i'm not a fan of hypocrisy i mean let's be honest we're all hypocritical in one way or another (laughs) um it's just you know anyway it's um but i do like the kind of like wild west of it and it also has a, a certain level of um a certain level of like, you know, better than them shooting, you know, people shooting guns at each other. So, um, you know, that's okay. I think my favorite tweet that sort of summed up Twitter and, and also I wish that I had saved it and knew who to attribute this to, but essentially their, their sentiment was that why are we all spending time on a platform where at, at, best a few people recognize some thought we had and at worst our entire life is ruined because of something we said yeah i think it's dumb i tend it's, it's so I, dumb i tend to like retweet things that i think are of concern on some yes. ethical level right. like i retweeted a lot of the information about what was going on during the riots in minneapolis and i also retweet people who i think are worth listening to but i yep. generally don't comment yeah, like I, I don't, probably I should probably not. I don't compose as much as I tweets. Do. I usually only uh-huh. retweet things. Right, right. Um, I don't have that much that I want to go on record. Uh, to be honest, I read it mostly. Like, there's people I follow, and I think they have interesting things to say. And then otherwise, I generally keep my mouth shut. Um, I have a podcast, and people can come to me, and they can listen to what I have to say if they're interested. So fair. Yeah. Um, okay, I think that's it. All right. That's all I got. Okay. <laughs>